Hello and welcome to Script and Pencils. Um, this is the Comic Creator interview podcast from the Comic Crush. I'm Paul and I'm here today uh, with Jeremy Holt, who has written this wonderful new book, Made in Korea. Um, he, it's been drawn by George Scholl. Have I said that right? You have. Um, and uh, it, it's an incredible book. I was lucky enough to take a look at a couple of the issues in advance. Um, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's nice to finally meet face to face. Yeah, indeed. We we have talked before uh, about your your book after Houdini, which I, I do advise anyone out there who's interested in kind of Victorian supernatural fiction. Would would that be a fair sort of short assessment of it? That's a very accurate assessment. Yeah. Um, if if anyone's interested in that sort of stuff, to to seek out that. So it's it's after Houdini comes first and then it's yeah. before Houdini yeah. is the sequel, sequel prequel yeah um I, I do advise anyone who's got an, an interest in that sort of kind of Holmesian uh supernatural fiction to check those out they're on insight books they are available now uh that they're, they're wonderful books I really enjoyed those uh that interview never saw the light of day unfortunately this one will <laughs> so. Um, for various technical reasons. Sorry about that, guys. Um, but we're going to talk about Made in Korea. Now, this book is set in a, in a future where th there seems to be some disease that is uh, preventing... Is it, is it preventing women from conceiving or men from... from producing shit like well I, that's I, a good question it's a, a general sterilization kids right. are no longer a thing mm. um and instead technology has come along and given people these proxies as they're called um kind of similar i, I, I guess just to make it easy for the audience it's, it's sort of similar to the movie ai there are you can basically buy a robotic child um those children stay constantly the same age. They don't grow. Um, and they have a, a seemingly limited amount of capability and learning capability, um, I, I guess, to keep their their mind and bodies at a, a kind of concurrent age. Yeah, they're very um, realistic. But, yeah, they do stay within a certain parameter based on their age. Right. And a, 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 um, a coder in... Um, or, or bioengineer rather in Korea comes up with an, an AI that is a, a kind of almost super learning type of AI, very adaptive, um, and, and sends that off in a uh, what would what have been classed as a kind of non-functioning model, uh, which gets purchased by a, a couple desperate to have a child. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, sorry, that's just get a basic. Yep. Much, sorry, sorry, uh, Jeremy. Um, now, I, the first question I wanted to ask you is: do, do you think that there is almost a pre, a, a kind of built-in predeterminism in human beings to create technologies that will supplant us? eventually 
Uh, 100%. I think right. that things we create are within our own likeness and image. Um, it's kind of hard not to design something that anything really that kind of has a face to it. I've kind of mm. read did a little research into just how uh, products get made, especially things that are supposed to replicate um, kind of a, the human experience or, or support the human experience. And uh, yeah, I mean, this, this proxy known as Jesse uh, is the first true AI system. So the, mm. this, her maker, the, this bioengineer, uh, Kim Dong Chul, is uh, the first to basically crack the code of the human consciousness. But he realizes he does it on company time and he decides to stow away his algorithm in basically a heavily discounted proxy. Right. As a sort of grace note, the, the industry, the, the, the company that he's working for is Wukjin Industries. Was that a nod to Clark Wukjin, the... Oh, oh, absolutely. Clark, yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. Because yeah. uh, I, I love that guy's stuff. It's... Well, <laughs> sorry. So, so, Wilkin Clark is his pen name, but his, his name is Hunter, and we actually went to college together. Oh, so, right. Okay. Uh, I didn't know I that. Just, I love the name, and I, and I said, hey, is this cool? And he was like, yeah, totally. Because <laughs> so, I, I loved uh, uh, Flavor that he worked on. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. yeah. Sorry, getting back to your book. Sorry, <laughs> I've gone off the rails already. Um, do, in creating this, how much research did you have to kind of do in into those kind of emerging? Well, I mean, I guess they're not even emerging technologies, are they? Really, they're they're kind of probably yeah. a lot farther ahead than we 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 assume they are. Um, did you do a long period of research into this stuff? Honestly, no, because I didn't really want to. I mean, I did some precursory research. Um, the most informative, informative thing I, I kind of came across was, so I work in a college town and uh, college had a guest speaker that I'd heard about was giving basically a talk on artificial intelligence and, and the question of who owns the data. And so it was a very lively and interesting idea um, focused on specifically Mattel and a line of Barbies that, that they had made, which had some AI built in where you could talk to your Barbie and it would respond but also the, the dolls themselves were recording the conversations. And what the company soon realized was that they were recording private conversations between the owner, a child, and their doll, and finding out instances of domestic violence, of neglect. And then it was basically the question, who owns this data and who has to take responsibility for it? Because now this is basically a, a societal concern and who mm -hmm. has to step in and how does you know law enforcement, government um, engage? So I thought about it from that component, but I didn't really want to get caught up in the, the nitty gritty about how this works because it's really not the focal point of the story. I wanted to showcase enough where you get the, the idea that, okay, this is this is like the first art of true artificial mm -hmm. intelligence and how does the world around her respond and how does she react? Do you think that the eventually the 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 data will own itself so that the machine will kind of should be granted a form of um, yes. sentience and humanity you, like yes. like it, just from a moral standpoint you're, you're that's kind of your, and, and i think right. that we're heading in that direction i think mm. that um with the 
just the the accelerated pace at which we're creating and improving upon technology, I think it's eventually going to get to that point, um, which is going to be an interesting thing to kind of have to grapple with. And, and you know, I have ideas for, for further story arcs with this series, and one of them would deal with um, the idea of uh, proxies being integrated within the larger society and, and how that would work. Do, do you look forward to a day when that, that happens? Um, I think so. I, I think that we as a society have been pitched this narrative that machines will rise up and fight against us. I don't really think that that's the reality. I think what we're essentially doing, and, and we're doing it at a rate that we don't really notice, but we're making ourselves obsolete. And it's not so much that these that machines will take over. It's just that we're phasing ourselves out. And that's something I've never seen done uh, directly uh, and with more nuance. And that's something that I want to I want to feature um, in subsequent story arcs for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a wonderful book, and and I really did enjoy it. But you do get that sense of kind of sinister. Uh, things happening on the discrete channel, which actually, did, I mean, without giving too much away, because I know you don't want to spoil the book for, for people, and sure. I, I certainly don't want to, um, actually kind of come from other humans rather than uh, yes. know, Jesse or or, or, yes. or her family, or, or, or even um, the, 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 the kind of lead bioengineer character. Um, there's a a kind of sense of seeing a person grow in it, which I, I think is wonderful. Um, and, but as you say, we are making ourselves obsolete. They, and these kind of creations will grow beyond us. Are you concerned about that in, in any way? Or, or, or again, is that something you're kind of, to see like i mean i know we, we, it's just kind of all very abstract. I, I think, uh, well i mean on a on a creative level i'm very excited to see that happen because there's just obviously more story to tell within this world mm. that, that george and i have created uh on a personal level i think there are way worse things that are happening that i probably won't live to see that happen like it'll i think it's an eventuality with with the track on how technologies accelerating, but I don't personally think I'm going to be around for when something like this story exists in reality. Um, but it would be, it would be interesting because, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, complex, uh, moral codes and ethics that go into this that, again, I didn't want to get bogged down because it's really not the, not, not the focus of the story. It's, it's more about, uh, human connections specifically with something that is viewed as synthetic mm. and what makes us human. Sure. Was was it an easy choice to pick a, a child as the focus there? Was that kind of a, 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 um, a quick process that you came upon that idea? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been inspired by all sorts of um, films and books. And uh, to me, because I, I wanted to tell an adoption story, I think it was important to feature a child and and that allowed me to kind of explore my own feelings about being a, a transracial adoptee and okay. the, you know, the diaspora I feel both as uh, Asian American and also, uh, 
you know, I may look Asian, but I'm so far removed from the culture that, that it's, um, it's uh, been something I've been exploring more in my own, my own personal life and mm. with my, my Korean uh, roots. Because it, it does feel very um, immersed in that culture. So it, it, like it, it doesn't feel like it's come from an outsider's not an outsider, but you, you know what I mean, from someone who's perhaps been outside the, the culture. Um, and I, that was one of the reasons I really enjoyed it, because you do get a sense of a different mode of, of speech and body language and, and, and kind of societal views from looking at the sequences in, in Korea. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of almost didn't, get for a second because obviously we jump from korea to, to california is it uh, texas texas i'm sorry yes and um th that was was a jolt for me because i was kind of really getting into this <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of my story and it's like oh no hold on <laughs> um it, it, um do you find that going on that sort of journey of discovery you kind of want to incorporate almost more than you possibly can fit in into the book do you know what i mean about about, about creating yeah. culture yeah i mean i it was an interesting thing because um very late into the writing process i i decided to include um i, I needed to straddle between two very different worlds mm. and and korea uh, specifically Texas and Korea, and, and uh, I wanted to try to give as much, you know, uh, lack of a better term, screen time for both these locations because they both play uh, an integral part to the story. They, they sig significantly, uh, or they have a significance to Jessie as a character because of her evolution and her trying to figure out where she fits in, and it's not just fitting in within this the town that she lives in but fitting in within the world as a whole and you know it, it allowed me to have that stark contrast between the two locations really for me i wanted to make it very apparent of the disconnect that um asian americans and even adoptees feel um straddling two cultures and not feeling like they belong to either mm. Mm. um did and respectfully, if you don't mind me asking, have you kind of sought out your birth parents since discovering you were adopted and things like that? Like, I'm sure you, is that, is that something you went through? It's a very complicated situation uh, based on a lot of misinformation based on... And you, you don't have to answer anything you don't want to, by the way, no. I'm sorry. Like no, it's, it's, a, it's a totally valid question. And I think it's important. And I'm glad that I'm being asked this kind of stuff because... Hmm. Um, it's honestly something I didn't think about for most of my life. And only relatively recently in the last few years has it taken a more prominent place in my mind. Um, I'm also a, a, a triplet, so I have two triplet brothers. Oh, wow. And, and one of them took it upon himself a few years ago to go to go digging. And I've done my own research and there's a lot of conflicting information. And I'm not, we are not the only Korean adoptees to receive conflicting information. The most common thing that is being told is, oh, your files say your parents are dead. Okay. And it's just kind of shocking. It's like, wait, I know how many Korean adoptees whose parents are dead. Like there is, 
you know, a lot of these agencies that facilitated the adoptions in the mm. 70s and 80s, some of them don't exist anymore. Those records have been since lost. So, and there is, I mean, there's less of a stigma now in Korea about adoptees coming home, but uh, there's a long sorted history of, of the, the transracial adoption that happened for several generations um, in, in the late 20th century. Um, that uh, Korea is kind of changing their tune on, which is nice to see. But yeah, it's a complex issue. Uh, and again, you know, sorry that you've had to go through that process because that that, that sounds like that, that that kind of must be an emotionally fraught experience to go through. I mean, it's not not something I, I'm ever going to experience, you know. So I've got no real understanding of it. So. Um, but but that that does sound emotionally fraught. How how much of that emotion did you kind of put into the the Jessie's experience? Because I mean, obviously, we see her go through. Yeah, I just I just even dumped, in the first three issues, I just, I just dumped all of it. I dumped all of it. <laughs> like, like I didn't even look. I didn't measure. I just like just threw it in because uh, this was a very. I mean. For me, I had been writing for most of my, for lack of a better term, career, writing comics. I had been writing white male savior stories. And I know why I did that. I know that for, for a very long time, I've lived with a sort of colorblindness uh, and wanted to view myself as American, specifically white American, having been raised within a partially white family. Mm. Um, and it just seemed natural to write those stories because I identified with that, that person. Uh, but I soon realized that it's not my story. And the more, the longer I've lived, the more I've realized the world doesn't view me as what I think I see myself as. So when I decided in 2017 to stop writing white male cis protagonists, it opened all these narrative and creative doors that were otherwise closed off. And I got to really inject a lot of my personal experiences, which I wanted to keep out of my work and then have subsequently incorporated very heavily because it's relatable. I mean, I think it's intu It's not intuitive to think that my problems are anything of interest to people, but it's a, it's a way to bond with other people who've gone through similar experiences. And as an, as an adoptee, as an Asian American, uh, I'm in this uni unique position to really provide proper representation. And I've received a handful of emails um, leading up to this release of this of this series from Korean adoptees that have heard about it and said that it's nice to finally see their experience um, explored in a, in a very direct way. That's great. I mean, it, it, it it's, again, it's not something I'm really, obviously I'm aware that, that children have been adopted and children from different countries have been adopted into, you know, white families and things like that. But it's not something you kind of necessarily view from from that angle mm -hmm. you know being a being a, a sort of white male white middle-aged male um so it, it's fascinating to see that done and, and especially done in this way through the science fiction vein does doing it through because it is a, i mean I, I guess we can call it science fiction it is oh, about okay. how people will live in the future um so it, it does did that make it easier to write about those things? In a way it did. Um, I like to try to like fold in or weave in mm. some of my own personal experiences in 
you know, a way that's accessible to readers. But the, what made it challenging was, you know, to write an AI story for me, in a way it was kind of reinventing this beloved wheel within the genre of science fiction. AI stories are truly captivating and fascinating. And some mm. of my favorites are uh, Her and Ex Machina and Chappie, even though I feel like people really hate that movie. I don't really know why. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it, it's just, to me, I didn't, I wanted to, to, you know, capture the audience that, that loves those, that story, that type of story and, and do them justice, you know, tell a story that is new and, and refreshed on, you know, this beloved topic of artificial intelligence. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there is some great fiction out there, some great comics out there. I mean, uh, Alex and Ada, Spring to Mind, and uh, Descender. Descender um, and, of course, recently on television, Westworld and, and, and things like that. And uh, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned Chappie because, it, like, uh, most of the uh, American protagonists in the book are middle-class Americans. Yeah, and I think the problem that, that people might have had with Jaffe is, um, and, th and this is something I, I kind of have slightly experienced growing up because I, I come from a very working class background, is that people do not want to see, you, you know, working class people, oh, or, you, you know, kind of <laughs> take any kind of big steps up, and, and, and I guess that's what the, the kind of protagonists of of, of Jaffe do. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, you could even say they're not less than working class, but they're not. They wouldn't even be considered a, yeah. a class of society because of their yeah. because they're criminals, you know. Yeah. And I wonder if that that was the issue with that is is just that's interesting. Like, you know? <laughs> I really like. I I wasn't crazy about the ending, but I, I think that there were things in it that were truly. Uh, excellent brain candy for me to think about when I was developing this story and things that I wanted mm -hmm. to explore and the idea that, yeah, you know, if, if, if hypothetically speaking, we put true artificial intelligence, a, a, a synthetic human consciousness into, into a robot, how, what is their progression? And that's something I took directly from Chappie was the idea that the learning rate is accelerated. So in Chappie's life, Chappie goes from infancy to young adulthood to, to within a span of a few weeks. Mm. And that was an important thing for me to consider telling, considering that comics have a limited amount of space to tell a story and that I, I couldn't, you know, pitch a, a 30, 40, 50 issue epic to, to image and go, hey, I want to tell this story. Um, so there was... Well, was not yet. Not yet. I mean, they might, you know, I, I, I'm... I'm hoping the book does yeah, well enough yeah. that you will be able to do that. Cause it's that would be great. Um, but yeah, and, and also uh, it's it's very interesting because unlike Chappie, this is, you know, the, this experience is, is happening for a very realistic, a hyper-realistic robot. So we are already supplanting and, and um, projecting our own ideas of what this proxy is and should act like. So when Jessie basically transgresses all the things that th her parents are expected to, to experience from their proxy, it's very disorienting for them as well. Mm. And that leads into this idea of, you know, who, what does parenthood mean? What does it mean in this story when, when parents are desperate to, to have parenthood as part of the human experience to raise a child, even if it's synthetic? 
And also, you know, as an adoptee, you know, who, who are the real parents? The ones that made me or the ones that raised me? And it's the nature versus nurture argument yeah. that is even more interesting within through the lens of sci-fi. And I suppose to a certain extent, to a certain extent, you, you, we kind of all become our own parents after a while, don't we? And I don't mean that we we kind of in, in, in copy what our our parents are, although there's an element of that. But we have to start looking after ourselves, and we have to make our own decisions, and we have to. And and and, and I think it's weird that not weird, but it is disorienting, as you say, that Jesse kind of starts doing that quite early on, you know, and uh, as, as I'm sure people will see in the book, at least from my point of view, the decisions she makes really aren't that great and, and you know, they're not as informed as they should be. Yeah. Um, and, of course, she, she becomes subject to something that I think is a real danger in society now, um, and, I, and I want to be clear when I say this because I'm not saying it from a racial standpoint because I, I think it happens in unfortunately a lot of uh, like it happens in everyone it's whether they're, they're um, from England and they're white or they're from somewhere else and they you know I, I, the real danger one of the real dangers I find in society now is radicalization yeah and it, we, we seem to be desperate to become radicalized over the simplest and, and in some ways stupidest ideas, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, we've seen to, to, to a great extent in, during the pandemic. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially with like, I think uh, I talk about QAnon with a friend of mine pretty mm. regularly, how it's just such a rabbit hole yeah. and, and it's so easy for people not understanding what it is to fall down it. And even my friend who's it, who, you know, she, she works at Google. She works within one of their AI divisions. I've spoken to her at length about this story. She's also a very talented screenwriter, but uh, she's done a deep dive into QAnon. And she said, even, even as someone who's educated and understands what it is, if you, if you go looking at it too long, it's like a, it's a vertigo effect. You start to lose your bearings and you don't know what is real. Yeah. And it can, it can capture anybody. And that's, mm. so it's, it's, that's an aspect of the story that I wanted to focus on um, regarding peer pressure, regarding trying to fit in, which uh, to me is a nice, a good vehicle for some larger themes um, in the story that uh, I think is honestly, without spoiling it, predominantly an American issue. Um, and uh, I'm curious to see uh, what people think of it. Yeah. I mean, there, there were instant connections I made with, with real life things when when you when Jesse's friends' in, intentions are kind of revealed quite early on. You're, you're kind of ah, uh, yeah, and then there are there are some very real. And again, I don't want to say what because I, I think that will give it away for an audience, and and that's not not something I'd like to 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 ruin for people. Uh, and it is better if that thing kind of creeps up on you and and sort of grabs you very suddenly um is it scary to write that stuff um honestly it it wasn't um the subject that that you and i are talking about is something that i've actually uh i experienced firsthand okay uh, i have experienced firsthand in, in in a kind of a mirror and and 
a missed situation. God, it's so hard to talk about this cryptically. Um, I work, okay, I work at a school uh, as a day job, as, as I do tech support. And there are certain things, there's certain training that, that school professionals, whether you're part of the staff or the faculty, you have to go through working at a school. Things that training that was not something that was part of your daily or your yearly um, job. Yeah, I, 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 I think I can. Yeah, 20 some odd years ago. So yeah, uh, and so I, I've, I have thought about that this topic a lot and I've wanted to explore it because I, I've seen, I've read a couple comics that have touched upon it. The only one I can think of off the top of my head is um, Alish Kott did a, a, a graphic novella with image called Wild, Wild Children that Riley yeah. Rossman that I really, really liked. And uh, I wanted to tell mm. that or talk about that topic in my own way um, and sort of kind of live vicariously through the protagonist of Jesse. And the research was, um, it was, it was hard to read. It was hard to understand um, some of the, the events that have happened in the span of, you know, I guess 20, 25 plus years where this has become more prevalent. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to know, to know what, uh, people think of that because from the people that have read the first few issues uh i think the unanimous opinion is they didn't see it coming because <laughs> i think most people want to think of just the the, the sci-fi and like yeah you know just focus on that but I, I think that is just one component and again that's why i didn't go hard into the the hard science of it because it's not really that important to my story mm. and it is it kind of gives you another emotional core to, to respond to. Um, and then that I found was the most kind of terrifying, you know, as you were talking about earlier, this kind of rise of the robots kind of um, mentality isn't necessarily something that you get from the book, but what you do get is the rise of radicalization and, and, and things like that. And that, that I do find utterly terrifying. Mm -hmm. um, and I find it really hard to engage with because I, I, I see it in people like, like, like yourself, you know, I've, I've seen it in, in friends and things. And at, at that point I've had to kind of just sort of back away and, you know, this isn't for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> that, and that's um, the best way to handle it. I mean, I, yeah, it is hard when you, when it's someone, you know, or someone you love and, and it's, I think we all have family or family mm -hmm. that's like, okay, we're just not going to talk about this. Yeah. Um, so. But, but, but also, it's it's not. I mean, when we say radicalization, we can also talk about the extremity of not even a worldview, but of attitude. Now, I, I find it really, really alarming when I look at people, and 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 just the the way they act is there's no kind of baseline anymore. Yeah, there's no there's no middle, and I feel yeah. like this with you know, the, the topic of politics as a, as a broad, if we're going to talk about it broadly, it, it's just, uh, it's this good versus evil, constant, mm. right or wrong. And, and it, I think that within, I think within American politics, there's just this constant butting of heads because either side is constantly invalidating the other. And I mm. think that you, you have to at some point just say, okay, I believe what I believe, you believe what you believe, Whatever you believe is valid, whatever I believe is valid, now let's have a conversation. But if you go into that conversation saying, you were wrong and you're stupid, 
yeah. game over. There, there's no, there's no, like you say, baseline. There's no middle. There's nobody really wants to see uh, re a resolution. They just want to be right. And mm. uh, and I think it's just it feels very bipolar. Um, and that was also something I was thinking about as far as you know Jesse's character development is is she's feeling she's being pulled in two different directions simultaneously and she doesn't actually know it until it's a bit too late and then she yeah. has to have, she has to pivot I mean it, it's an amazing thing to see that that in, in just the three issues that I've read that you've managed to kind of bring up so many uh, so many talking points and there's there's clearly so much intellect going on in 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 the book um but i do want to talk for a moment about uh george charles art because that is, is incredible as well and i i was just absolutely blown away by his kind of paneling and design um how, how much of that is kind of you saying okay just free reign this is roughly how i see it go go for it or are you a kind of writer that, that's very exacting in your scripts? I this was this has been a long teachable moment for me, a, a learning lesson I constantly learn. Where when I started twelve years ago writing stories, I I micromanaged the crap out of my collaborators, and because I just was a perfectionist. And then I read an interview with Brian K. Vaughn, who is really the the inspiration for why I started writing comics. He said in an interview where um, the only thing that he cares about with his scripts that he's married to is the pacing. So right. as long as the pacing isn't changed, he's not married to any other aspect of it. And if our artist needs to move panels, add panels, remove panels, you know, that's the artist's job. They're, they're handing, handling the visuals. He's handling the story. So thinking about that um, and working with so many artists at this point in my career, George and I just have a shorthand we developed the shorthand over the last four years working on this. And I provided context and some sort of like, you know, reference images for locations, but they totally ran with it as far as like costumes and uh, the fashion alone, totally George. And that's impressive because I gave zero thought to it, which is quite an important thing in a futuristic story, at least a future that's set just outside of our reality. Mm. And, and it's 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 interesting you mentioned that because I, I noticed it. It's all kind of these very loose fitting clothes, and everyone's kind of it, it, it is sort of it's pandemic wear, really, isn't it? It's kind of very <laughs> yeah. comfortable. It, it's one of these things where you know George and I talked about it for a while about the aesthetic, and and we both really, as far as fashion, reference the film Her because what Spike Jones did such a great job on with with his costume designer and and, and the whole team there was that they created a future that little small things that made it seem not of our present day reality, like high-waisted pants, very simple solution to making it feel, feeling a little mm. formal, even though it's supposed to be, you know, a futuristic LA. And, it, and it's, it's stuff like that that George and I wanted to, to utilize. And, and we didn't want to have a story with flying cars and stuff like that. We wanted realistic tech. We wanted stuff that, made sense and served the story, but wasn't a distraction. Yeah, completely. Because it, it, it and again, sci-fi sci is, you know, where we, you know, how we live in the future. And it, it's got to be kind of, 
digestible and, and understandable to where we are now. I mean, I, I, being an older person, I look around me now and my mind is utterly blown by what technology can do. I have those moments where I'm looking and I think, this is basically the future. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to think of the last piece of tech I saw where I, I just thought, well, this is the future. Um, you know, we all want hoverboards and flying cars, but we're kind of already there with yeah. something. Like, I think I, 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 I get overwhelmed with that sensation when I'm watching reruns of a TV show, like say Seinfeld. What's interesting is that it's such a time capsule because they're doing things that don't exist anymore. Like <laughs> using a payphone to check your voicemail <laughs> or going to a video store. Like, and, and that is a situation that's completely of its time because if the internet was part of that storyline, all of the conflict almost goes away instantaneously. Yeah. They don't miss each other. They, they are constantly in, in, in communication, uh, but it creates all new new sorts of comedic drama. Like thinking about George as being someone on, on Twitter, he would have been canceled immediately. He would have yeah. been canceled immediately. Yeah, as I think a lot of us would have, do you know what I mean, if we had perhaps adopted Twitter. If I think if I had adopted Twitter a few years ago, a few years earlier, I'd have been like, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> and I feel like I'm of the age where I, I interact or come across some, some new tech, mainly an app these days, where I'm just like, hard pass. And I think that I've gotten into <laughs> this. I've gotten into this. Like, so like, TikTok? Not for me. Like, look at you. Like, I, we like back back when I worked in comic shops, and of course you're always looking for ways to get the word out there about yeah. what you're doing in a, in a in a store. Uh, we toyed, we talked for about three minutes about TikTok, <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, this isn't gonna like, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's one of these things where it's like, do we attempt it? And if we do, we might fall flat on our face at trying yeah. it. And yeah, it, and it's interesting that I have a I have a brother who's a social media influencer, and as a, as a triplet, it's it's a very strange time to live with within a, a time period where you know we have the internet because he's all over TikTok, and weekly weekly I get messages from friends going, "Is this your brother?" It's like, yeah, yeah, it's my brother. I'm like, because for a second they think it's me on TikTok. Yeah, like, no. because are, are you all identical? We are identical. We did have a DNA test done on our birthday, I don't know, four or five years ago. And the DNA test says we're 99% identical. If you saw photos of us, I mean, we've lived very different lives. So we do look different. I would say that Chris and Justin look very much alike, uh, just by the fact that they're just covered in tattoos and they, they like to kind of look the same. They, they've had the same haircuts. They've even had, they sort of have matching tattoos. They both work at work out heavily. And what I found out through my own adoption was that for the first year of my life, I was by myself, which I think oh, is wow. very telling about how okay. when people meet us, they, they just see a stark contrast between me and them. Mm. Uh, and I've kind of read up in, into this and I, and I think that, uh, you know, the most formative years for a child's development is between eight and 12 months. So, right. It kind of sets the tone for everything. So it's it's just interesting to to be a triplet, to be a multiple, and to to just see what the world and our own life experiences have dictated, and and how we present ourselves. And and they they have no problem looking the same sometimes, and it weirds me out. It's like get an identity. <laughs> 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 
you can only say to people you know really well or to family, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, once he plays a dresser like this, might be a harsh opinion of mine. It may be a hot take, but I think it should be classified as some kind of mental illness because it's like I mean, it's, it's the idea that you are you are a monolith. You two people are, are the same, and it's and it's it's so against the grain of my very being, my core, and I've. I strive to be my own person. I've strived to do my own thing. I've actively distanced myself from them, not because I wanted to, but because it just felt like the natural course and progression of where I need to be. In terms of physicality, not, not, I mean, I'm assuming emotionally you're all kind of tight and you're all kind of, you know. I mean, they are very close. They're mm-hmm. both close. Um, I think I've just kind of, I've never considered them in regards to what I'm doing. And they've always considered each other, which is, which, sort of makes sense if they spent the first year of their life together and they didn't even know I existed mm. uh, on, on a infant level. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, that's, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing because when I, I think people have a, a fascination with twins and triplets and, and I, 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 identical children. And I, I, I certainly kind of do, and you do have to kind of catch yourself and just go, oh, actually, no, that's wrong. You know, you need to just kind of snap out of that because it's, yeah. you're, you're, you're treating them like, you know, so it, it, it is a form of objectification, right? I mean. Yeah, it absolutely is. And there's just so know. many layers to it. I mean, like I've heard stories about Asian Americans dealing with the conflicts of living in an American society regarding culture and food, uh, the stigma around that. And then on, on top of that, if you are adopted, I've, heard about adoptees having their own struggles for me I, all of the above and then on top of that uh being a multiple is even another layer where it's like i for, the, for most of my childhood and young adult life i was viewed as one of a set never mm. my own person. and it was very rare that my first name ever got used it was always one of the holts and it's like that really bothers me and i've just been kind of swimming up against that that uh, current for most of my life. That's, yeah, I mean, sorry, I'm laughing because it is kind of, but yeah, no, no. you can kind of see it happening and you know, <laughs> how people treat kids and stuff. But uh, yeah, it, it is kind of a completely bizarre and I guess sort of slightly dehumanizing experience. I mean, it definitely is. Mm. And, and of course, I, I guess looking at multiples, as you say, you, that there is from the outside, and I, I'm saying this, and again, I'm not trying to be offensive, but it is a kind of machine-like thing where, hey, look, they're all the same. They came off yeah. the same line. They're all yeah, the same. And, you know. and it didn't help that my 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 mom loved to dress it up as in identical clothes. <laughs> if you're going to buy clothes, might as well just buy three of the same thing. It's just easier. Yeah. I get it from a practical standpoint, but I look at those photos sometimes and I'm just like, oof, like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's There's just so much layer upon layer upon layer mm. of that I've spent most of my adult life unpacking and, and understanding for myself. And I just think it's also very interesting the timing of the release of this book because it was supposed to come out a year ago. So with the pandemic, everything got pushed. Mm-hmm. Life as we know it got, got hit, or the pause button was hit. And I think it was kind of perfect timing because of, um, you know, Asian cinema has been one of these things that has slowly crept 
into American culture as far as you know prestige, winning awards, being viewed as 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 cinematic, as as something worthy of of note. And I think that with Bong Joon Ho's Parasite winning for Best Picture really set a new tone as far as uh, pop culture, media, Hollywood. And then with this year with Minari and Nomadland and, you know, Lee Isaac Chung and, and Chloe Zhao getting recognized and then other prominent, you know, Asian actors getting recognized. It just kind of, to me, almost feels as close to fate as possible because this was the perfect time for my book and also my friend Pornsack's book, The Good Asian, to come out where we both talked about how it's very interesting that many mm. of our books and actually there's an, uh, and a young adult author that I came across, her name is Sarah Souk. Uh, she has a young adult debut novel that debuted yesterday made, called Made in Korea. And I found it because I, whenever I do a book, I look up my title to see if there's anything out there. And hers Lord. was, and our book is, our books are literally within a week of each other. So hers is very diff, completely different story, but I just think it's very interesting just how the zeitgeist kind of manifests these things. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And and it, it's good to see, though, because it means you, you, that there's this entire culture that perhaps you we're not as, or I know I'm probably not, you know, not aware enough of that, that's now kind of getting pushed to the forefront. Um, and, and I think we're going to see that for a while. And, and I think it will be not interchangeable cultures, but, it will, you know, every year or so, hopefully the, the kind of wheel is going to turn and we're going to see okay, yeah. there's, there's more of that culture and, and we're going to, because slowly what, what happens there is progression and you get <clears throat> a bit more understanding uh, and less, hopefully less um, intolerance, you know, less kind of, it, yeah. it's just, I mean, for me, I, I, I actually loathe the term, race because it's just like look there's one race it's the human race that's it <laughs> it's real. yeah, yeah on some level we're all we all want the same things yeah and and we all we all came from the same place and it's yeah. it's the same planet it's just different land masses and you know and the, and the reason why people look different is because we all kind of migrated to different places at different times and and started changing those cultures and, and it's just like look this is in a way yeah, that should be celebrated, and I, I think that yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, technology has definitely helped that to some degree. I think there's obviously a lot of work, and I, and I think it, it gets more complicated with what the internet is doing to to I don't know separate us to to break us into different camps, train of thought. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just think like with this thinking big picture. You know, it's interesting how some stories can live on in different mediums. So, like, a part of me has always kind of held on to the the fantasy or concept that if this ever was adapted into something, it would be a great opportunity to bridge the gap between, say, Korean cinema and American cinema. And I specifically wrote, you know, this bioengineer to not speak English because I like the idea of, of some big Korean actor being cast in this role and it be, being broadcast in America and just getting a real deep dive of, of both cultures, yeah. the cross pollination of exposure. 
That yeah, that would be great. I mean, I, and I love those sequences of him kind of a, a, trying to adopt into English, and then of course when he does finally meet uh, an American, she's she's Chinese American, so mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it all becomes redundant straight away. Um, and I I, I I absolutely love that, and and yeah, just a terrific book. I, Jeremy, there are so many more questions and things I want to ask you. I hope we get to talk again soon because yeah. okay. I, 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 I love the book. They're, they're, they're terrific. I'm, you know, I definitely want people to go out there and, and get them next week um, <clears throat> because I, I think you've got kind of a real winner on your hands and I, I want the audience to kind of meet that and, and, and see it. Um, and congratulations to you, George, you and George, and the rest of the team on the book. It's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful-looking book. Um, it's kind of just such a, a feast for the eyes. I, I, I just absolutely loved it. Um, so congratulations to you, and I hope that uh, we we get to to see more of it soon. And, and of course, um, you can buy that book. All good comic shops. Uh, I get my comics from Gosh Comics. Uh, I'm sure if you give those guys a call or hit them up on uh, uh, the internet, you'll be able to, to secure yourself a copy. It's certainly something you should do. I've got a feeling it's probably going to sell out. It, it, it's it's uh, such a good out. book. I, I, I think it will. Like I mean, it's just really terrific. Um, and, and, of course, you can still uh, uh, the Insight books you did, the Houdini books are still widely available. They're, not, they're, they're still in print, as far as we know. Uh, they're still in print. Uh, mm. <laughs> I don't know about the availability, actually. But they are still oh. There's still copies of yeah. Um, they're, they're definitely worth checking out. I, I really enjoyed those. Um, and it, it does kind of help to sort of read them back to back as well, because they're, yeah. they're a good fun sort of double to, to, to read. Um, I will actually try and find the interview that we did, Jeremy, <laughs> if I've still got it. Um, uh, because I think it might have got lost in, in some sort of data crash a while ago. I, I hope it hasn't, and I will get it transcribed at some stage. Uh, I am really sorry about that. I mean, I would happen to be to be back on to talk about uh, before Houdini because I never really did a whole lot of press for that book, and and it's yeah, we can, yeah, we can we can look at that uh, sometime in the future. I think, um, but I don't doubt we'll be talking again about Made in Korea, um, a, a second volume of that. Um, but do hit me up anytime and, and come and chat about anything. It, it's been a fascinating conversation and I, I really appreciate you kind of digging into the stuff behind the book as well and the personal stuff behind the book. Um, I, I really appreciate that. And, yeah, I appreciate and, you know, and, having, and having just the conversation and, and the interest and the, the genuine support. I really appreciate it. it. It's been fascinating. Jerry, thank you very much. I'm just going to, Sign us out there. Goodbye, folks. We'll catch you next time on The Crush. Remember, follow us on Twitter at The Comic Crush and same on Instagram. Um, big thanks here to Jeremy. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. Uh, there's the web store, the Patreon. Please take a look at that because uh, that helps me keep going. And uh, we'll be back with another video soon.